Well, I expect most of us have had an experience like this when you've been with a number of folk in, in quite a busy room for a while and then you've had to go out the room for some reason. Maybe you've gone to answer the door or gone to see something in the kitchen, maybe you've gone to the loo. And after you've been away for a wee while, you come back in and as you open the, the door and go back into the room, suddenly you realise, gosh, it's hot in here. Now, did it get hot the uh, two minutes that you were out the room? No, it was getting warmer all the time and you, you didn't notice it just because it was happening bit by bit. It was gradual. I'm told that if you um, put a frog in a pan of water and heat it very gently, the frog doesn't realize that's what's happening and will stay in the pan of water even until it's boiled to death. Um, sorry, that's not a very pleasant illustration and, and don't try that at home. Um, well, not unless you've got a couple of French friends coming for lunch. Things changing gradually tend not to be noticed. Something that's there all the time we accept and we get used to it. And that's true of way, ways of life as well. If, if we're used to something, we just kind of accept it. Um, there were a few brothers who used to visit us um, in our house when we lived in Rochese. And one day, uh, one of them followed Karen into the kitchen. He would have been about... 10 years old at the time, and he followed Karen into the kitchen and said to her, Karen, what do you do when Mr. Palmer hits you? Do you hit him back or do you phone the police? About a decade before that, I was in Glasgow's other ruch. I was in Ruch Hill doing, doing youth work and, and came across uh, women who were very upset if, or a bit worried at least, if they didn't get hit by their man on a Friday night. You see, it's what happened. The guy got paid on a Friday. He went out and got drunk. And when he came home, he battered his wife or his partner. And, and if the woman didn't get beaten, um, sometimes they thought, oh, I wonder if he's seeing somebody else. Is he hitting somebody else and not me? Tell me a while just to get my head around that. But you see, when people are used to things, then they don't notice how awful or how difficult it seems to, to somebody else. There's much, much being made at the moment about statues and, and street names of folks that were, were done to honour folks who um, were benefactors, but yes, but whose largesse came from proceeds that they'd made in the slave trade. Now, I'm not wanting to excuse anyone who was involved in the slave trade, but we should remember there was a time when it was taken for granted. People were not horrified by it. We might say this similar over the years about different attitudes to warfare, or we're very aware today of different attitudes to issues of, of sexuality and, and gender. And through all of these, there, there comes some kind of sense of this, this is the way it is. This is the way people see things. This is the way these things are. Now, our series of James and James is looking at a number of tests to see that we're in, the, in Christ. He first of all talked about our response to trials and temptations, whether our love for God is greater than the circumstances of our life. The second test was how we respond to Scripture, God's Word. If we love Jesus, we'll love what He's saying to us. We'll love His words and want more of it. And the third test was whether our lifestyle shows signs that we are following Christ. And now in chapter 4 the, the, and into chapter 5, the question, the, the test is, 
whether we are resisting the ways of the world that are ungodly, whether we're being guided by God's standards, or whether we're just accepting whatever it is that's around us. There are, there are some occasions, there are some things in life where you can have it both ways. You know, maybe going out for a, for a meal, do you want meat or would you like fish? Well, you can order surf and turf and have a bit of both. My next car could be one that runs in both electricity and petrol. But there are times we, we can have both. If I take my hybrid car and go out to the M8 and say I'm going to drive to the end, end of the M8, then either I'm driving to Greenock or I'm driving to Edinburgh. And I can't drive to the M8 and think, oh, well, I want a bit of each, you know, a wee bit of Greenock and a wee bit of Edinburgh mixed together. No, it's one or the other. And Jesus was clear that when following him, it was one or the other. It was his way or the world's way. Jesus said to his followers, John 15, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. The choice was stark. Matthew 12, he says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. No middle ground. No a bit of both. Jesus doesn't do a faith version of surf and turf. Years before, Elijah had confronted the people of Israel who were swithering between following God or the, just going along with the crowd and following the prevalent view of their time, the, the God Baal. And Elijah went, we're told in 1 Kings 18, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And now James is saying the same thing to the church. You cannot follow God and Satan. You cannot be following Jesus and going along with whatever the world says. And he picks out two areas where there's a clash, two areas that are so basic and so fundamental that they're issues not just in James' time, but still issues in our time, and indeed have been issues in all the years in between. The first of the two issues that he picks out is an attitude towards power in the first 12 verses of chapter 4. And he begins that but with the observation that there's conflicts going on in the church. Now, there shouldn't be, and we know that there shouldn't be. Um, but pretty often, too often, there are. How does that happen? Why has that row broken out? How come you two are not getting along? How come I can hear some angry shouts? Why did you ignore him or her? And before any of us start down the road of explaining how we've been offended, how the other person is at fault, James points out that our, des our desires play a big part in this, verses 1 and 2. It might be our wanting our own way. It might be our need to be noticed or our need to be thanked or approved of. It might be that we're greedy or we need to be right all the time. But these are what the world does, says James, verse 4. And it should be very different among Jesus' followers. He runs quickly through a number of attitudes that we should have. Submit yourselves then to God, he says, verse 7. So when I am caught up in a row... 
when I am thinking, how am I going to get my own way here? How can, I, how can I have this so that the outcome is something that suits me? I should be asking myself, is this what God wants? It's what I'm trying to do here. It's what I'm saying. It's what I'm thinking. It's what I'm trying to maneuver into being. Is this something that pleases the Heavenly Father? Am I considering whether or not he is pleased with me? It was one of the most humbling experiences of life when, as the parent of young children, I would see one of them do something that I just thought, oh, no, that's terrible. What a way to behave. And then in the very next moment, I realized where they'd got it from. They'd got it from me. But I remember the disappointment and seeing something thinking, oh, no, that's terrible. Well, God sees that. God feels like that. So that's why James says, submit to God. It's not behavior that we get from God if it's not of him. But he's just as sore, just as disappointed to see it among his people. And yet sometimes we just bash on with the, the rouse or the conflict or wanting away because the power thing. And as well as submit to God, verse 7, he says, resist the devil. For not only is the longing to get our way at all costs something that hurts our heavenly Father, it also has the enemy rubbing his hands with delight. Just as the, de the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness, so he will t try to distract us, to trip us up. And he's so pleased when he pulls it off. He doesn't leave us alone. You might remember in that passage that we, we looked at in Jesus being tempted in the, the wilderness in Luke chapter 4, it said not just that there were the three temptations, but he was tempted throughout his time there. The devil doesn't take days off. He's always trying to trick us up, trip us up. He's always trying to trick us, to find us out. And we need to resist. And then James says, after submit to God and resist the devil, he says, verse 8, come near to God. Because it's not just that there are some rules that we have to submit to and obey. God longs for us to have fellowship with him. And we cannot come near to God if we are doing what he detests. And James says that he will turn to us if we turn to him. It's like the story of the, the lost son in Luke 15, where, you know, the prodigal has been away for years, and he's spent the father's money, and he's wasted it all, and he, he goes, starts to go home, and he's trying to think of all the excuses and how he's going to put it, but instead the father rushes out to greet him. That's what our God is like. So James says, come, come near to God, and he will come near to you, verse 8. And he tells us, verse 9, to grieve and mourn and wail. That is, our, there should be a sense of our sin upsetting us because we've disappointed the Father. Again, just like the lost son in, that, in the story in Luke 15. Our sin should be a source of hurt and upset, not because we feel bad about it, but because we've let God down. And it's only as we recognize who we are, sinners, and over as we, only as we grieve over that, that, that we discover what it means for God to draw near to us. God, godly grief over our sin is where our turning to Him begins. But it's not where He leaves us. 
he will, verse 10, lift you up. And so in our world which says, me first, in our world that tells you that you must affirm yourself, that you deserve this and that and the next thing, the way of Jesus clashes with that. Self-worth in, in our society is by bigging ourselves up, or taking, or dominating, or getting what we want. Worth is measured by possessions. Happiness is seen as a function of wealth. But Jesus says the exact opposite. He says the last will be first. He says giving is better than getting. He says if you want to be lifted up, verse 10 in James, first be humbled. So we can't surf and turf. We can't have a bit of both, a bit of Jesus and the world. It is either Jesus or the devil. We are either for Jesus or against him. Now, what the world says is kind of all around us all the time. It's like being in the, the room that was heating up gradually. We're just surrounded by something and, and we don't notice it because it's there. Well, if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to start taking notice. We have to learn to identify what's not of Christ. And so if we don't watch and if we don't give permission to other believers to watch us, then we are just like those who don't notice the room heating up. We don't know the, notice the world's values creeping more and more into our lives. So test yourself, says James. Because if we don't, we fall just into the very same traps, verses 1 to 4, as the world's in. Well, that's his first example about power, about me first, about getting rather than giving. The second one from um, chapter, uh, from verse 13, sorry, to uh, verse 6 of chapter 5 is about our wealth, our self-sufficiency. We get more, says James. And then verses 2 and 3 in chapter 5, we hoard more. We get more and we, verse 4 of chapter 5, defend injustice. We get more, we become extravagant, verse 5. That's right, isn't it? We hoard. How many attics are there in people's houses in East Bride? How many lockups are there throughout the town that are filled with stuff and stuff that people are not going to use again? We have more clothes than we're ever going to be able to wear, more books than we can read, cups and saucers that we never use, more DVDs than we will ever watch again, and so on and so on. And then people hoard to the extent that they have so much, a bigger house and everything else, they have to put bigger fences and security cameras and everything else, protecting because we're hoarding. And then injustice first. Um, <clears throat> sorry, verse 4. Something, incidentally, which has got a lot worse, I think, during lockdown. How much more available is the vaccine in rich countries as compared with poor countries? Some folks have made lots of money out of the lockdown. Maybe they've got a, a business or a product like Zoom or delivery drivers that was just right for the occasion. Maybe they know the right politician's ear to, to whisper in. Well, maybe I'm not allowed to say that kind of thing, but let's face it, it's been going on and it's been shameful and awful. And it's unjust and unfair. It's what happens. Wealth says get more, get more, and we don't mind bending or disregarding the rules. And our wealth 
helps us not to notice. Our wealth means that we can build so much around us that takes up our time and attention and everything else that we don't see injustice. We don't see the un unfairness of it unless we make specific attempts to look. Extravagance, verse 5, our society finds more and more ways to spend, more and more things to spend on. And again, we all have our blind spots here, and they're different blind spots. And our notions of other people's, well, that's a waste of money, um, is not necessarily what they think of ours. And we find ways to justify our own indulgence. But in the kingdom of God, wealth is used to bless others. Wealth is used to minister in Jesus' name. It's not used for more luxury items, more luxury treatments, more bigger and over-the-top events and so on. Now, it's so easy to, to read James' word, words about self-indulgence and luxury in verse 5 and think, oh, that must be, that must be for somebody else. You know, it's probably for these you know, rich sports stars who have got agents arguing about whether they're going to get paid £400,000 a week rather than £350,000 a week. These guys, these are the ones with huge luxury and extravagance. Me? But that's another trick of the devil. We have to measure ourselves not against the world standards, it's no, no defense to say, well, at least I'm not as extravagant as so-and-so. Simple fact is there are billions of people in this world that I would be so incredibly embarrassed if they were lifted out of where they were and dropped into our house and, and saw everything that's in our house. Be embarrassed. I would be ashamed. I, I would be stumbling and struggling for, for words just to explain to them why I've got so much. And I didn't maybe set out to have that much, but you know, things creep on it, on it, creep up on us bit by bit. And things that we once thought of as a privilege become an entitlement. You see, if we're followers of Jesus, we need to find ways in which we are discerning about that kind of thing, seeing what's going on. Now, that's not easy. It's not sorted by one decision or one action. That's one reason that we need to keep meeting together. We need to keep helping one another. We need to keep sharing with one another. Because every day in life, there is a world-based emphasis with powerful machinery of advertising, with huge peer pressure and so on, all pulling us in a world's direction, not a Jesus direction. And very often, it's subtle about it. Very often, it creeps up on us. But then sometimes also, it's screaming out at us, suggesting everybody's like this, everybody sees it this way. And it's a lie. And if we truly are Christ's, then we will want to know how best we can resist that, how best we can embrace his countercultural way. Now, the test is not whether or not we have perfectly consistent lives. None of us do. 
we will drive ourselves crazy if, we, if that's the standard, trying to dot every I and cross every T. No, the test is whether or not we're seeking to follow Jesus. Whether or not we're saying, what is a Jesus way here? Do I really need to do this? Do I really need to grab this? Do I really need to affirm and assert myself over that person? Do I really need to get the last word? Do I really need to have this new coat? Do I really need to? The test is whether or not we don't just do these things unthinkingly, but whether we're seeking to follow Jesus, which will mean amongst other things, a concern to be faithful in, in all things, a concern to go against the flow, a concern to make known not just a different way, but a better way. Abundant life. That's what Jesus promised. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray that you will help us not to dodge the implications, not to dodge the challenges of your word. So often we prefer it when it's a, a nice promise that we can lay hold on, when it's something that sounds comforting. And Lord, yes, these words are words from you, but also so too are the words that prick our conscience, so too are the words which challenge us, so too are the words which, as we are looking at a few weeks ago, just hold up, as it were, a mirror before us. So help us to take a good, honest look and not to turn away forgetting what, it's, what it says to us, but to changing our ways and our lifestyle, that it might be more and more according to the way of Christ and not just going with the flow. We need help to do that. We need your Holy Spirit given at Pentecost with, with us, strengthening our resolve, guiding us and giving us discernment. God of grace, help us for your glory. Amen.